Greetings and welcome. A word of prayer before we begin. Father in heaven, we express our gratitude to you for this opportunity to meditate together by the Spirit on the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that this time may be blessed and set apart to your glory and to your honor by the Spirit and through your Son. It's in his incomparable name that we pray. Amen. I'd like to begin by first expressing my gratitude to Rick, not only for this opportunity, but for his immeasurable commitment to this congregation over all these years. It's been an intense labor of love, energized by by the grace and mercy and gifting of God, to be sure. But Rick's response to his particular calling has been absolutely astounding in my view. I'm sure I'm not alone in this. And we've all benefited and continue to benefit beyond measure as a result of his relentless positive response and love to his gift and calling. He's truly a man whom God has made great. And I know I speak for many, if not everybody listening, that I personally would not know the Lord Jesus Christ in the manner that I do if it weren't for his phenomenal gift and teaching. So nothing but gratitude where Rick is concerned. And to Pam as well. Um who's unquestionably been a pillar of love and edification and support for this congregation behind the scenes through her unique and intuitive understanding of this intensely mysterious and strange gift of pastor-teacher and the uh, responsibilities that accompany it. So to to both of them, just uh, limitless (laughs) gratitude and and respect and love. Secondly, uh, to all the men who have spoken here in Rick's absence over all the years, but particularly in the last few years, which have been admittedly strange. I'm also grateful to all of you, and I'm continually just knocked out by the extraordinary insights you all so clearly share and communicate. Brian, Emery, Jeff, uh, Professor Sadar, Craig, Phil, You've all just been an incredible force of edification to this congregation, and gratitude is most definitely in order directed at you guys as well. Um, I've personally been a member of this congregation for nearly 30 years, and it's been a great honor and privilege and source of stability and joy that would be difficult to measure. It's truly humbling to be part of this family. It's a family that's been knit together in grace and truth and in the Lord Jesus Christ and I don't value much in life more. So, gratitude to all you guys. Our subject today is kind of a threefold thing. Primarily, it's the joining of heaven and earth. And secondarily, the uniting of opposites and the artistic lens of interpretation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we observed his glory. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and in him was life, and that life was the light of men. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether in heaven or on earth, 
by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin that we, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him so that we may share in the divine nature. God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God and that he may be all in all. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us siblings. It is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Several years back, Rick engaged in a study of Revelation, I'm sure you guys all remember, which is referred to as Rev the Book. And in the very early stages of that study, he began teaching in some detail regarding Bernard Lonergan's insights with reference to theological functional specialties within the body of Christ. We're not going to do any kind of detailed review of those particular specialties, Um, Those teachings are easy enough to find. But suffice it to say, they could be understood or framed as spirit-enabled communicative aptitudes, which sponsor the growth of the body from various perspectives and through a variety of lenses. And since the the Christian spiritual life is a transcendent life, it is, of course, profoundly nuanced and absolutely requires this variety of specialties in order to articulate those nuances and consequently enable us to live a correspondently transcendent life. I'd refer to uh, Romans 12:1 and 2, for example, reads as follows. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And in Mark 2, verses 21 and 22, this is a good one because Brian has, been, uh, has brought this passage up in some recent messages uh, regarding Christ at the Passover. Mark 2, 21, 22 No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new patch pulls away from the old cloth, and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost as well as the skins. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. So with those two, two verses side by side with one another... We could consider our own times um, and uh, make the observation that scientism, and I would argue even humanism as well, have nearly reached their limit and are about to die. They're old wineskins in a manner of speaking. Jesus Christ and his ever-fresh revelation by the Lord the Spirit is new wine. The old wineskins cannot contain it, and they are about to burst. In fact, I would posit that death itself is an old wineskin. It could not and cannot contain the resurrection life that Jesus Christ is as the new and superior Adam. And we are not to be shaped in a manner which corresponds to a life and death in Adam apart from Christ. 
Adam and all that are in him are conformed to his life and to his death. In Christ, all are conformed to the life that is in him. That's resurrection life. That's the life of Jesus himself. Death cannot contain that life, and it will not. We are to be set free from the enslavement of the life and death that are in Adam, and we are to be transformed in order to live that transcendent resurrection life that is in Christ Jesus, the new Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 2 Peter 1, 4 says, He has given us very great and precious promises so that through them we might be partakers in the divine nature Participation in the divine life, that's what's in view in, in these passages conceptually. So if you link these passages and principles together in your mind, what begins to emerge is a picture of the stark differences between life in Christ and life apart from him. Those differences cannot be accentuated um, with, with more intensity. So back to the idea of theological functional specialties and their importance with regard to enabling this transcendent Christian spiritual life. They are, by the way, interpretation, history, dialectic, foundations, doctrines, systematics, and communications. That's all eight of them. Uh, They can be found in a book entitled Method in Theology, which Rick has mentioned countless times. Um, That's by Bernard Lonergan, and they're in Chapter 5 if you want to read in detail um, about those, those things. But anyway, and I had many conversations with Rick about this, it was at this point that I really began to think that while all these specialties are immeasurably valuable, they seemed incomplete to me. It seemed that the lens of art was curiously absent. It could be potentially considered within the category of communications, the eighth functional specialty, and and Lonergan does, he does associate it with a communications specialty, but I personally think that category is too vague and, and a little too narrow to contain uh, the artistic lens in its entirety. So I personally think the reason for this absence of the art lens, uh, particularly in the West, can be traced back to the Enlightenment period, which has had such a powerful impact on culture, particularly on the West, as to virtually eliminate theological and philosophical thought and meeting meaning and trade it for a cold and pragmatic materialism. And I think we are presently experiencing the extremely unsavory sociological and cultural ramifications of that trade-off at the present time, but that's probably a discussion for another day. Um, So with all of that said, a somewhat specific consideration of symbolism within the matrix of artistic interpretation is probably in order and a good place to start. So We'll deal with biblical symbolism and pattern. And, and those are kind of synonyms. Think of symbolism in the uh, ancient sort of conception as more of an unfolding of discernible pattern. Um, it's, it's unlike the way we think of symbolism in the West in modern times. But uh, a few definitions of terms just to, to ground this. I think these come from the Oxford Dictionary. I'm not sure which edition, uh, and I'm not even positive, but... That matters not, I'm sure. So the first term is materialism. The primary definition is the theory that physical matter is the only reality that everything, including thought, feeling, mind, and will, can be explained in terms of matter and physical phenomena. 
Secondary definition, the theory or attitude that physical well-being and worldly possessions constitute the greatest good and the highest value in life. And thirdly, concern for possessions or material wealth and physical comfort, especially to the exclusion of spiritual or intellectual pursuits. All three of those definitions are very, very good. Um, And of all the competing worldview systems, particularly in the West, Materialism is, unfortunately, the default structural underpinning of all of them. It's the dominant intellectual force of the modern trends of scientism, and its influence on the shape of culture and popular philosophical presuppositions would be difficult to exaggerate. The first level of discerning reality, according to this worldview, is analysis rather than experience. Let me say that again, because that's an extremely important concept to to wrap your brain around. as we move forward. The first level, we're talking about materialism as a worldview. The first level of discerning reality, according to this worldview, is analysis rather than experience. Second term we want to define is ontology. Primary definition, the branch of metaphysics that deals with the nature of being. Secondary definition, the theory of being, that branch of metaphysics which investigates the nature of being and of the essence of things. Third definition, that department of science of metaphysics which investigates and explains the nature and essential properties and relations of all beings, as such the principles and causes of being. Those are all very good too. Third word I'd like to bring in is praxis. This is an uncommon word um, in, uh, in, in the West, but I really couldn't find a better one to encapsulate this. And it's praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. First definition, practical application or exercise of a branch of learning. Secondary definition, habitual or established practice or custom. Third, use, practice, especially practice or discipline for a specific purpose as the acquisition of a specific art. So those are pretty wordy definitions, and they're pretty accurate. To simplify them, I would frame ontology as nature or being, and I would frame praxis as act or praxis or doing. And these are deeply connected to our topic of joining heaven and earth, Um, and we'll we'll see how how that unfolds and unravels as we move on. But that's the simplest way, I think, to compress the whole thing is to think Ontology equals being or nature. Praxis equals doing or act. Ontology and praxis are coexistent and united in the beginning. And I I mean the beginning in Genesis 1. And only later become fractured and separated. In principle, when that which is united breaks apart and is separated, it's referred to as a fall. There's definitely more than one fall in the Bible. I would recommend the writing of Michael Heiser, who just passed away recently. Um, fantastic theologian. He wrote two books I'd recommend, Supernatural, which is sort of the truncated, less academic version of the bigger book called Unseen Realm. He dives into this topic in uh, great detail, and I think he's very much worth reading. In fact, if I remember correctly, I think Rick recommended him to me. Anyway, Genesis 1, 1 1-2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. Another term to define, symbolism. Now, again, this is coming out of a Western dictionary. 
primary definition, the practice of representing things by means of symbols or of attributing symbolic meanings or significance to objects, events, or relationships. Secondarily, a system of symbols or, or representations. Thirdly, a symbolic meaning or representation. This is my opinion, but none of these definitions quite captures the ancient understanding of symbolism and pattern at all. They're all at least implicitly connected to the dominant modern materialism worldview that I previously mentioned. The emphasis lands primarily on representation of something by symbol or even metaphorical reference to something in the material range of thought and conception. This is not the ancient understanding at all. And in fact, this was an intuition in the ancient world. It wasn't like they even thought of symbolism and then defined symbolism. They experienced the world this way. Um, they, didn't, they didn't have to go backwards like we do uh, and, and redefine these things. They lived inside this world, this symbolic world. Um, the material or physical nature of things was not the immediate concern of ancient people. They were primarily concerned with meaning, not material. In other words, they were not so much cultures of ontological interest, but of praxis and meaning. Their questions weren't predicated on a default interest in what things are, materially speaking, but what things do in terms of their function and purpose. Again, relating to what we just said earlier about ontology and praxis. And they didn't remove themselves from this mode of understanding, by the way, and that's that in materialism they almost always do, and they do it in scientism too. Science, uh, well, I don't certainly don't want to criticize science too much, but it, it's um, scientism deserves all the criticism in the world because it, it uh, criticizes the very framework that it's dependent on and that its very values cannot be derived um, from science. They have to be derived from a hierarchy of values. You have to determine what's valuable in order to even decide what to study, and those things can't be determined inside a, a matrix of pure scientific thought. So, but that's, that's probably for another day. In ancient worldview, the first level of discerning reality was the phenomenological experience of the world they encountered and inhabited, not a material analysis of it. Let me say that again. That's a really important concept as well. In ancient worldview, the first level of discerning reality was the phenomenological experience of the world they encountered and inhabited, not a material analysis of it. So if I could offer sort of a, a definition of symbolism from an ancient perspective, it's a pattern of intelligibility. It's an agency of manifestation of meaning, truth, and reality. These categorical patterns have qualities of intersectionality and convergence and mediation and unification, and often those are of opposites. Another principle, symbolism isn't an arbitrary encoding or a detached idiosyncratic language or a secret code. It is an intelligible manifestation of reality and meaning and truth. And it has its roots in shared universal experience. The Bible is formed and coherently connected by symbolic patterns throughout. And the mediator who acts as the ultimate mediating force of that coherence is Jesus Christ himself. All things are joined together in him. And uh, let me read that again. That's, a, again, another really important principle. Symbolism isn't an arbitrary encoding or a detached idiosyncratic language or a secret code. It's an intelligible manifestation of reality and meaning and truth, and it has its roots in shared universal human experience. 
The Bible is formed and coherently connected by symbolic patterns throughout, and the mediator who acts as the ultimate mediating force of that coherence is Jesus Christ. Everything's joined together in him. Genesis 1 again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's two major symbolic categories introduced here in Genesis 1 and uh, 1 and 2. And they're pivotal, I think, um, and probably are the underpinnings of all the other symbolic patterns uh, in the scriptures. So the heavens are the spiritual, immaterial realm of pure ideal. You could think of them as the high place or the above dimension. Earth is the substantial or material potentiality, the lower, the below dimension. This is arguably the primary and most important symbolic pattern to understand. Uh, I, I definitely think it is. The heavens is the realm of God is first and primary. It is a dimension of pure, immaterial, unsubstantiated being. It is an initiating realm of reality, the top, the higher or the above thing, and it is characteristically masculine. The earth is described as being without form or order, or I think more specifically, without manifestation of meaning or meaningful expression. It is lower or below. It is substance, its potential, its possibility, and it's characteristically feminine. The fact that these two things are characteristically masculine and feminine from a symbolic standpoint is incredibly important to, to uh, comprehend. By way of reiteration, the ancient concept of earth was not scientific at all. They didn't even have science. It was conceptualized as a lower material or substantial aspect of the universe. Heaven, on the other hand, was the higher immaterial spiritual dimension. These are, these are the cosmological categories of the ancient world, and they are completely antagonistic to the modern scientific conceptions that drive contemporary thought. Uh, again, another book I'd like to recommend, and Rick has recommended uh, as well, maybe a few months back, is by Matthew Pajot. He's a Canadian author, and he wrote the book called The Language of Creation. Um, and it's, it's probably the best, certainly the best modern book that I've read on this subject. It's, a, it's an incredibly deep and, and profound work. I would highly recommend it if you're interested in these things. So back to consideration of these primary categories from an ancient and symbolic perspective. Earth is, is the material level. It's formless and void. Uh, the Hebrew expresses that as tohu wabohu, as you all know. And, and I think it really means it was absent of meaning or absent of expression. The heavens are the spiritual level, and they lack tangible expression. Um, or more precisely, embodiment. This is important because it's the body which hosts meaning. So in, uh, in continuity with a tactic that Rick has been employing, especially in recent years, it'd probably be a good idea for us to stop and ask, what are we doing and why are we doing it? First, the what question. Uh, what we're doing is we're attempting to recapture the sensibilities and aptitudes that we have as image-bearing creation to see the world that we inhabit with the understanding that it was made by God for humankind. And that it's a man-shaped world. It's a man-shaped cosmos. The world was not and is not formed by God in an arbitrary manner. It has ontological form and it has correspondent functional purpose, as does humankind. Again, I know I'm recommending a lot of books here, but if you're really, really interested in, in, um, in, in a, a detailed explanation of this, I'd recommend 
a book called On the Cosmic Mystery of Christ. Again, I think Rick has mentioned this book before. It's by Maximus the Confessor, one of the early church fathers, it's, and it's phenomenal. But make no mistake about it, the world is Christ-shaped, and we are image bearers. So to answer the question why we're exploring this somewhat abstract idea of an artistic differentiation of consciousness or interpretation through an artistic lens is that this capacity is part of our image-bearing. It's kind of, kind of part of our, our kit, our image-bearing kit. <laughs> and it has been drowned in many respects by the deluge of modern Enlightenment materialism. If we are to be whole, we cannot afford to trivialize any image-bearing aptitude that we've been created with because in the measure that we do, we desensitize ourselves to the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ to whom we have been united by his faithfulness. Let me say that again. If we are to be whole, we cannot afford to trivialize any image-bearing aptitude that we've been created with or that we possess. Because in the measure that we do, we desensitize, our, desensitize ourselves to the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ, to whom we have been permanently united by his faithfulness. We should desire the fullest vision of our Savior possible. That's the desire of the Father, and it's the Lord, the Spirit, that energizes that pursuit. If you put Philippians 2, 12 to 13 together with 1 Timothy 2, 3 to 4, along with Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, this sort of explodes. I, I, I don't know how you could miss it. But we are the creative workmanship of God, his artwork, if you will. I think the word in, the, in Philippians 2.10 is poema. We get the word poem from it. Rick can correct me on this if I'm wrong. But, um, so we are his artwork, and he's most certainly the ultimate artisan. And incidentally, from an etymological standpoint, the word art in its original meaning meant to fit together. Um, I think that's an important thing to bear in mind um, because the definitions of art have become sort of trampled on in, in modern times as well. So all of these realities scale up and down from the most lofty and broad expressions down to the most particular and specific. As was mentioned early in our introductory conflation of Genesis 1 with John 1 along with some excerpts from Christological hymns in the New Testament and other passages, that concept is abundantly clear, I think. But to offer even an even more microcosmic illustration of the macrocosmic concept of the joining of heaven and earth or the uniting of opposites, let's look at Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, since we just mentioned it, in conjunction with some fragments from James 2. Um, we'll be drawing from James 2, 14 to 26, but not the whole thing. First, the Ephesians passage, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. Now, in James 2, first we have, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? Further down the paragraph, uh, Faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Even further down the paragraph, faith without works is dead. Wasn't Abraham, our father, justified by works in offering Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was made complete. That's the, the pivotal section, I think, and really starts to, uh, to draw all the elements together. Once again, that verse, you see that faith was active together with his works. They were joined together. And by works, faith was made complete. Um, again, we're starting to get a little bit of a picture of the joining of heaven and earth. 
You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And at the end of this passage in verse 26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, there certainly is a puzzling paradox here, or even a direct contradiction between these contradiction between these two passages. If a few critical things are misunderstood, and they they often are. Firstly, the different not here. <laughs> Firstly, the differences in terminology: saved and justified. They're conceptually connected and overlap in some measure, but they are not synonymous terms by any stretch. Justification, as Rick has pointed out many times in the past has more of a connotation of vindication, which is not the primary thrust of the salvation language being used in the Ephesians passage. And the faith language being used in the Ephesians passage is also not aimed at individual belief, but on Christ's faithfulness. I'd reference Philippians 2, 8 through 11, uh, in conjunction with the the, uh, Ephesians 2 passage. It's not my purpose to deep dive the language nuances here, but to accentuate the theme of uniting heaven and earth, or in this case, more importantly, the joining of apparent opposites into, in a particular expression. These two passages present a useful backdrop for this, though, because they are often thought of as being contradictory or antagonistic to one another, but I think that's clearly not the case, and I'm, I'm sure you all agree. With all that in mind, the idea to try to capture here is not the superficial apparent contradiction between faith and works, but the union of the two as they represent a very clear example of ontology and praxis being proportionately united. There is an interplay here, a dance, so to speak, between the propositional element of faith and the participatory aspect of practice. It's the art of the Christian spiritual life fitting together in a complementary and coherent way. Remember, art is fitting together, and the Christian life is an art. John 20, 31, 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to walk in. Luke 6.35 and 36, but love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. I think uh, going back to Aquinas here for a second, uh, defining love since we're speaking so much about it, um, I think he had one of the most coherent and and sort of uh, laconic definitions of love that I've seen. He calls love the willing of the good of the other as other. That's a a really, really loaded statement. um, And you could spend messages and messages unpacking that. But just keep that in the back of your mind for the time being. Love is the highest functional modality of the genuine Christian spiritual life. It integrates all other virtues. 1 Corinthians 13, that whole chapter, bears this out in great detail. Love is at the center of God the Father and of Christ Jesus and of those who are united to him in the Spirit. Whether those virtues are interior or exterior in nature, love is the operational force that brings them into fullness of expression. In other words, they all get joined together and brought up into a middle. Um, and that's, that should hopefully place a picture in your mind. 
Um, again, according to Aquinas, love is the willing of the good of the other as other. The pivotal part of that, I think, to focus on is the as other part, because this isn't the willing of the good of the other with a view towards that circling back and benefiting the lover. It may do that, but that's not the, that's not the purpose of it. Um, obviously, Jesus Christ himself on the cross is the, the, the pinnacle of this expression, but it's the willing of the good of the other as other. And we should never reduce to prayer what we as image-bearing, image-bearing creation of God can actually accomplish as far as the good. That's a, that's a gigantic subject and probably shouldn't even bring it up now. But anyway, the willing of the good of the other as the other is, a, a, to me, a very, very succinct um, definition of what love actually is and is certainly contradictory to how most people conceptualize it as being some sort of emotion or sentimentality or something like that. It isn't that. It's a spiritual skill. Love is a spiritual skill, um, both conceptually and pragmatically. That's what it is. Um, so there's a manner of living that is fitting to the citizen of the heavenly polis, and it is love. Where ontology and praxis or heaven and earth are united together in Christ, it gives birth to love. Without getting too explicit, this scales all the way down and manifests even in human physical relationship. Remember from Genesis 1, heaven is the initiating realm, and it is characteristically masculine. Earth is a receiver and is a fertile and it's fertile with potential and possibility, and it's characteristically feminine. When they are united, what breaks forth is new life. Jesus was conceived in the Virgin by means of the Spirit and was born out from her to manifest a life so rich in perfection of love as to be placed on a cross hanging between heaven and earth itself, joining everything together in himself by self-sacrificial love. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by love. We should probably read that one again. Jesus was conceived in the virgin by means of the spirit and was born out from her to manifest a life so rich in perfection of love as to be placed on a cross hanging between heaven and earth itself, joining everything together in himself by self-sacrificial love. God was most certainly in Christ reconciling the world to himself than to the joining of heaven and earth. This same love is poured out into our hearts by the Spirit so that we may be the embodiment of Christ and the manifestation of his life and love in this world now. This is the manner of life that is fitting to the heavenly citizen, and it transcends by infinity any identity or affiliation that's in competition with it. Earthly politics and political associations are absolutely laughable when considered in comparison and in this light. Earthly national politics can't join anything together at all, let alone heaven and earth. It's a cheap imitation of heavenly citizenship, and that's at its very best. I mean that in a kind of Isaiah 64, 6 way, if you know what I mean. I I know Emery does. Right and left political categories can never create genuine unity because they do not operate in truth and love but in self-interest. The right tends to shrink categories down into a very narrow parameters and then force identification and participation in them. It trivializes the individual in favor of the group, while the left, on the other hand, strives to dissolve categories altogether into such a fluidity it resembles the chaos of a flood. It screens out the group in in favor of the individual. The problem with both is that 
their attempts at unifying one is always at the expense of the other. It's built-in divisiveness. Conversely, heavenly citizenship does the exact opposite because in Christ, the individual is brought into fullness by the love of Christ and by God himself and without compromise of individual identity and yet is also drawn into the unity of the family of God being integrated in such a way as a transcendent reversal of the imminent polarity that is inevitable with political right or left solutions, if you could call them solutions at all. And they're not. They're problems. Back to the concept that love as the higher integrator of all lower manifolds of virtue. Uh, that borrows a bit of language from Lonergan as well. And also Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Uh, if you go through that, you'll notice that in that passage... Um, love is at the summit of the mountain of virtue that we're all called to ascend. That's, and that's what this spiritual life is. And it's an ascension up the mountain. And there's tons of symbolism even in the, the image of the mountain itself. But uh, Philippians 3.14 uh, illustrates that it's an ever upward call. Let's look at Philippians 1 for an example of a more propositional aspect of the integrative and operational power of love. Paul says this in Philippians 1.9. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. You all that have been around for a while probably remember Rick uh, teaching on this threefold advancing phalanx of agape flanked by gnosis and eustasis back in the Philippians series. I would view this as love giving direction to a matrix of virtue made up of knowledge and discernment. Love emerges as it unites these more propositional ontological virtues. But in 1 Corinthians 13, I think we have a more functional aspect of virtue in view. Yet they are equally joined into fullness by ex- an expression by love. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. These virtues are much more a matter of praxis or function within the framework we have under consideration. But when faith and hope are spiritually aligned with one another in a correspondent manner, they both manifest and are led into coherent expression in and by love. And also with with 1 Corinthians 13, 13 in mind, let's consider faith and and love in connection to, uh, faith, hope, and love rather, in connection to at least some aspects of human consciousness. It seems apparent to me that faith is directly correspondent to the function of memory, in the human being. It provides the ability to pull from the past and draw, draw it into the present. That's how we're united to past believers, um, regardless of how, how distant we are in time. And hope appeals to the human imagination, the ability to pull the future down into the present. I believe that the communion ritual is the most sublime and beautiful expression of heavenly reality joined to earthly reality symbolically. And that's at least a series of messages on its own. But I really do believe it's, it is the most beautiful expression of what, what we're discussing here. So faith and hope meet and are joined together and manifest their full expression in love now. Faith and hope do not lose their particular attributes by being joined in love. They find their full expression in it. And that's in stark contrast to the politics of earth and men. And this is the way that heavenly citizenship and politics work, by love. 
Love is the unifier of all the other virtues. They find their fullness in love. Remember the five precepts of transcendent living. Be attentive, be intelligent, be reasonable, be responsible, and be in love. Love gathers them all together um, and places them into into a a practical functionality as well as uh, an internal dynamic um, that, that I believe provides us with rest in the soul. Now, in terms of visual artwork in the modern era, we're much more familiar with photography than painting, and we are even further removed from iconographical painting. In the West, the Catholic Church has maintained some of the traditions of iconography, but it's really the Eastern Orthodox Church that has held it as a primary aspect of liturgy and spiritual life. They've really never left it. With photographic art, the strength is in the ability to capture a moment Uh, However, with iconography, there is a concentration or collapsing of moments that are separate in the time and space continuum, but are nevertheless joined together in imagery that captures their transcendent relationships in ultimate reality. Everything we just spoke about regarding faith, hope, memory, imagination, and love is smashed together in this profound and powerful way in this, this manner of artwork. Let's look at... Emery, I don't know if you need to bring up the image, if... if, uh, We can see that now. Um, But we're going to look at an ancient Eastern Orthodox icon now to illustrate the idea. There it is. Thank you. To illustrate the idea of joining opposites, this, this transcendent marriage of heaven and earth in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are only hearing the audio portion of this presentation, it'd be helpful to go online and find, um, do a Google search and find the icon image, uh, ancient icon image referred to as resurrection or anastasis or even more commonly Christ's descent into Hades. It would most definitely be a good idea to, to get a visual for this when you get a moment. Um, there are variations uh, on this image as there are with all the icons from artist to artist. But when it comes to the traditional icons, in general, the key components are all there. So if we look at the image starting at the center... Um, Of course, we have Christ, and there's glorious light emanating from him, depicted by the gold beams. He also appears to be emerging from a background image, which is in three parts going from darkest to lightest. That's called a mandorla, which is the Italian term for the word almond. And I think it depicts emergent movement, first from eternity into time, in, in fact, the, the incarnation itself, from spirit into corporeality, the incarnation as well, and from death into resurrection life, from incarnation into resurrection. Those are all present there, and they sort of explode out from the image. Um, he's also holding the wrists of a man on his right and a woman on his left, and he's pulling them out of death. That's depicted by the caskets at their feet, that you can see if you look carefully. Um, and he's joining them to himself. This is Adam and Eve, and they represent humanity as a whole, um, with no exceptions as we know. Um, Notice also, that if you look carefully again, he's gripping their wrists, not their hands, and what that indicates is this is not a cooperative effort. This is not not, um, Adam and Eve having some form of gripping and, and, and participating in the being pulled out of death. They're, they're being grabbed by the wrist. They're being pulled out purely by Christ and on his merit. They're, they're, they're contributing nothing. Um, so they're being pulled out of death into life by the wrist. 
This indicates that it's not a cooperative effort. Christ is accomplishing their movement from death into new life with him. You'll also notice as we move down the image, still focusing on Christ, that the gates of hell are under his feet and they are in the shape of a cross. You can also see all these implements of binding being scattered into darkness. There's keys and locks and chains and nails, etc. They've all been broken. And uh, while it's not always present, but it is in the image that we're looking at, at the bottom, um, there's a bound figure, a bound dark figure at the, at the bottom, and that is representative of death itself. Some people uh, think it's an image of Satan. I, I actually think it's death itself um, being bound permanently. It's a pretty clear and profound image of reversal. Um, so to, if we move back up the image a little bit, to Christ's right are depictions of John the forerunner to his immediate right. Um, and then you have King Solomon and King David. Again, this isn't capturing a moment in time. This is a concentration of everything in Christ. These things were not simultaneous in the time and space continuum. To Jesus' left, we see a shepherd. This is generally thought to be able, and it most likely is, but I think there's an argument that it could also be simultaneously a young David. Remember, time-space restrictions are not a problem with iconography. It's somewhat unclear who the white-bearded men in the image are. Some, some think they don't represent anyone in particular. I think that's highly unlikely. I personally think it's Abraham and Moses and potentially Paul simultaneously, if you're willing to envision Paul as a kind of new Moses um, with the idea that they are both Abraham and Moses, or, or Moses and uh, Abraham and Paul, rather, um, are both steward administrators of two covenant worlds on both sides of the cross in time. But again, that's just a personal opinion. I don't know if I could substantiate that. But I think the image bears it out. And that's the purpose of these images, by the way, is to is to excite the imagination. Um, the image is, like, like I said, it's a compression or a concentration of all reality into one place at one time. That's very, very difficult to do with words. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to do with photography or any other art form. Iconography is a truly special art form in that it has the, the ability to, to smash time and space together, um, in this case with Jesus at the center. So I think these things are worth meditating on and observing, maybe even hanging in your home. Anyway, so in closing, I'd like to perhaps close in an unusual way by reading a passage that is often read in Orthodox Vesperal Liturgy. It seems fitting after considering these concepts and viewing this powerful image. It's a poem of sorts from the perspective of death personified. It reads as follows. Today, Hades cried out, groaning, My power has been trampled on, the shepherd has been crucified, and Adam he has raised. I have been deprived of those over whom I ruled, and all those I had the power to swallow I have spewed out. He who was crucified has cleared the tombs. The dominion of death is no more. Glory, O Lord, to you and to your cross and resurrection. I can't amen that any more strongly, and it sums up this, this brief study and consideration of this icon. So, uh, amen to that, and thanks for listening. <laughs>